You are listening to season four of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, a 10-part series in which hardware wallet makers and breakers get interviewed. Before I introduce this episode's guests, let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at Femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. and You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. So this might be the last episode of season four, the 10th episode, which is about the cold card wallet. And my guest today is Rodolfo Novak, who gets the privilege of having the final word on this. I'm not sure if I'm going to do any more episodes from this season, but if I do, it will be like small players. So of all the big ones, Cold Card gets to have the final word, which is quite an interesting position because there is a lot of reacting to do to what other people have said. And I have sent some questions to Rodolfo to synchronize and make sure that everything is fine to discuss. And I'm really excited about this. So hello, Rodolfo. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really happy that I got to convince all the big figures in the hardware wallet market to get on the show and not only mention what they promote about their products, but also what they think about the general state of hardware wallet market and also how they envision the future of private key security and what they think about cold storage. And I think my first question for you is pretty much the same one that I asked to everybody else who was on the show. Why would anyone use a hardware wallet as opposed to anything else like a brain wallet or a paper wallet or some other (laughs) DIY solutions? (laughs) Well, I I think um, for for, the average person or even the advanced user, um, having a very simple electronic device 
that is capable of doing the Bitcoin operations you need and not being on a computer infested with viruses uh, is a big deal, right? So even if you consider a Raspberry Pi uh, not connected to anything with the right software in it, a hardware wallet, um, you're already winning uh, big time, right? Like your computer, especially nowadays, is just so complex, so full of stuff that uh, it is it is impossible to really secure it uh, unless you are a true expert. So having a device that's made for it uh, will remove a lot of the low-hanging fruit, regardless of the quality of that. Yeah, also, I guess a lot of people have lost their Bitcoins in the early days because they <laughs> relied on their hard drives with the core client or because they just didn't think it would be valuable. So they didn't care at the time, I but mean, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you're that... getting for free all the the, the tested and um, in, in best practices of hardware wallets, right? So we have all these competitors, sort of like all these vendors working on hardware wallets and everybody's sort of improving the whole process of doing Bitcoin safely, right? So. When you get a hardware wallet, you're inheriting all these best practices for free. Yeah, and there's a lot of open source software. You can even choose which one you want to use. And I think Slush even told me that there are over 50 clones of the Trezor on the Chinese market, which is interesting. I wouldn't use those. <laughs> yeah, sure. But yes, the, I, I take your you point. <laughs> yes. It's still interesting. And I remember writing an article for Bitcoin Magazine about how you published all the documentation to build your own cold card. That's that's right. Uh, everything on cold card is available uh, for you to buy off of uh, um, any sort of parts reseller. And we have the, the firmware is fully open source and the hardware schematics are also fully open source. So if you wanted to sort of like prove to yourself that we say we do what we do, you could just rebuild it yourself and, and that, that should uh, suffice your curiosity. Right. And it's not just about curiosity. I guess it's also about people in countries where they cannot order from CoinKite, which is based in Canada, maybe that they live in North Korea or something and they want to stay safe and I don't know how they can get the parts. Maybe they can build them themselves or whatever. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, ultimately, you give people a way of, of having the device, even if you can't sell it to them. Yeah, that I think that's the most useful part. There's also, of course, the auditability of hardware and software because people can verify that. Exactly. You're honest about your marketing and stuff like that. But speaking of this, why is the cold card special? Why do, you, why do you think people should opt for the cold card as opposed to something else? Well, I mean, cold card was a product of our own needs. Um, neither of the vendors, uh, the main vendors were sort of building something that would suffice our preferences and security requirements. So we've decided to, to make it ourselves. Uh, and, and then, you know, there was enough interest, so we put it on the market. Um, and people seem to, to like it. You know, it's a device that uses a secure element, uh, but it's open source. Um, it has proper backup setups. Uh, it works cold. It, it has uh, dice features. It has address explorer features. It, it's got like a ton of stuff that you know, I'm not going to wait for vendors to sort of come up with. So we're just building the thing that we needed. I, I think uh, that's sort of the best way to make a product. I agree. I mean, I, I remember when I first met you that you told me basically that you built the cold card for yourself and adapted it to the needs you thought that you might have according to your own mindset of security. And then it caught on as a commercial good that can be sold on the market. And I guess it's kind of successful. I see a lot of people who like it on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we sell a ton of them now. Um, you know, it, it's a fairly well-priced device for the amount of features it gives you. And 
uh, you know, the, the community knows that, you know, we keep on sort of adding features and, you know, people request things that we often get it done for them. And uh, other systems are also uh, integrating it like Casa and Chain and all that stuff. So th there is a, it's quite amazing that, you know, and I think it's only two years and a half now. I can't remember when we launched it. Uh, there is a, a very robust ecosystem around it. And uh, uh, I, I mean, you know, and I don't see the competition still solving my needs, which is uh, kind of interesting. So, uh, so we're going to keep on going. Yeah. And before we move on and basically discuss everything about the hardware and the software of the cold card, let's, or at least let me ask you a question that has been around since episode one and has become sort of a tradition during the season to ask representatives of hardware wallet manufacturers to say something nice and something terrible or bad or whatever about their competition. And the four companies about which I will ask you are Trezor, Ledger, Kipki, and Kobo. And you, I guess you can start with the Trezor and say something nice and something that you don't like about it. I, I think that the Trezor uh, was the first to uh, to sort of identify, you know, the need for an open source hardware wallet, and uh, you know, and they have good cryptography chops. Uh, the problem that I have with it is that one, it has not evolved to understand security needs, and two, it's completely unsafe physically. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tricky place to be at as a, as a product, um, I guess. Uh, and then for Ledger, um, Ledger is interesting because um, it is fairly secure. Uh, the architecture is, is a known type of architecture uh, in the chip and pin uh, in industry. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is closed source. And uh, I can't make myself use a closed source device. Um, KeepKey, I believe, is a is a Trezor clone. I am not super familiar with the guts of it, but it, it's also closed source. But they do have a, a beautiful uh, uh, industrial design. I love the little cube, or whatever you want to call that shape, um, of the KeepKey. Uh, and then uh, I think you mentioned Kobo. Uh, they, they seem to have very nice industrial design. I'm not super familiar with their architecture to, to be able to, uh, to talk about it. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I spoke with Linksy of Kobo. I, I hope I didn't mispronounce his name. Lixin. I said Linksy. Lixin. It's not the most usual name for me to pronounce, but I spoke with him before this and he had nice words to say about the cold card. And also he was kind of constructive in his approach. And I like that. I mean, he works for a company which develops products for the Chinese miners. So I guess that's a niche in itself. Yep. It's a whole other universe. Uh, like China is, it's a whole other place for, uh, hardware devices. And uh, people in China don't seem to be, at least from the impression I get, and totally from others, people are not as concerned about security there for some reason. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think I ordered the questions just the right way, because I, I did not anticipate your answers. But the way I send them to you, the first one is about what Slush said and then what Ledger said, and they relate to the criticism that you made about their devices. And I'll go first with Slush because we did episode eight of the podcast, and he said that in his opinion, he has been experimented with a secure element and has some prototypes of the Trezor with a secure element chip, but he came to the conclusion that he cannot make a design that is 100% auditable. And in his opinion, it's more important to be transparent and chasing physical security in his opinion is kind of an illusion so, because you have to renew the so, setup all the time and stuff so, like that. Yeah, let me just get right in there. So I, that's super misleading, right? Because one, Trezor is not 100% 
uh, auditable because unless you have an electron microscope, you cannot tell what the dye of the chip is doing, right? So you, you could have had the device swapped. You could have had a bunch of attacks that are, you know, advanced, sure, but um, not fully auditable. So that that's sort of like a very boogeyman kind of uh, argument. Uh, and, and I don't think it's very constructive to the industry because it creates just FUD. Um, and, and then there is a massive spectrum, right, of secure elements, like many flavors. Uh, you can you have sort of like the, the ledger flavor of secure elements where it's a smarter secure element and you run your code inside, right? That provides a lot of security to you because you have all your code, everything you do inside the secure element. Unfortunately, those are closed source. Um, and so, you know, you're losing the openness and auditability. So that doesn't work for me. Uh, and then... Um, you have this other sort of branch of secure elements. They're extremely dumb, right? They're, they're essentially fixed function secure elements. All the code uh, is already pre-done in the die of the secure element. So you can't really change it. You can only set settings on it. And uh, and that's the chip we use. It, it's a super, super simple chip. Um, and we only use it to hold the seed right? And we don't actually even let the chip see the seed. Um, what's interesting about that is we use an open um, uh, MCU, right? Just like, like, just like Trezor does to do all the Bitcoin operations with our open source code and do the encryption of the seed also open sourced and then put that encrypted seed inside the secure element. So even the secure element had a say backdoor, which is very unlikely, uh, or a flaw or something, the secure element still doesn't see the seed. So you'd still have to break the other MCU, the other open chip, to 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 get the 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 decryption key for that seed, right? So in our case, you'd have to break two chips, right, to be able to see that seed. And then there's the fact that uh, the 508, we're using the 608 now, but the 508 already has uh, public data sheets. The 608 requires NDA, but any secure researcher that contacts uh, uh, Etmail can get, that ND, can get that NDA signed and then do research on it. And also there's plenty of labs out there that have already decapped the 608 and have uh, full pictures of the die. It's such a simple chip that making the argument that the, the 608 is sort of like a, a closed source boogeyman backdoor is insane. Uh, it, it is effectively, you know, as open as the, as the, the MCU used on, on uh, Trezor and Coldcard. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important that, uh, we focus on physical security because, you know, a hacker wallet should be able to use, to, to offer you more security than a Raspberry Pi, right? I, I mean, like Trezor has no physical security. Uh, I understand that's their, their, uh, idea and they sort of rely fully on the 25th word. Uh, I'm not sure that was part of their um, marketing back then, but it, it became after it got uh, owned. Um, I, you know, it, it's, even if it's a, a marketing shift, uh, it, it's still a very good idea, right? It's still a very good idea to use that 25th word and not rely fully on the hardware. But to me, a hardware wallet needs to withstand a minimum amount of attack, right? So, you know, if you have your hardware wallet sitting on your drawer or something, you, you need to be able to survive basic attacking, right? You should be able to survive something that, that uh, you know, you maybe have a maid swapping the device um, so that you can show the device was swapped so you don't get uh, spearfished for your pin. Uh, there is a slew of, of attacks that could happen uh, that the secure element will help you uh, with. Uh, even if you have the 25th word, it can still be, uh, spearfished for your pin, right? Um, that won't help there. So uh, I, I don't think you could get away with making a hardware wallet without a secure element anymore. Is a hardware wallet that is as basic as a Trezor still better than a computer with viruses? For sure, you should still use a hardware wallet. Uh, 
but I think that the bar there is too low. I think we, we need to do better. Um, right now in the third version of, of code card and, and, you know, there's still a lot of stuff I want to do. There is other chips I'm ex- experimenting with and you're going to probably see another version of it, you know, in a year or two, uh, because, you know, it never ends. This is a new industry uh, and, and we need to, to make things better. Uh, there is no need to stop. Yeah, sometimes I think about the situation where you pass through airport security checks and let's say that you have your hardware wallet in the carry bag that you take with you in the airplane. Yep. And they make you take out all of the electronic devices. And if you don't, they will just see that there's something there and ask you to take it out anyway. So they make you take out your laptop, your external battery, your phone and everything else. And I suppose that hardware wallets also have some sort of either batteries or electromagnetic field that gets emitted and will get discovered in the scan. So you'll have to take it out. And I'm thinking sometimes, can they have any sort of hacking devices that they use just like they have the ones for iPhones to unlock the password? In the case of Trezor, that's 100% possible. Uh, You know, for about a hundred bucks, you can build a little box that you stick a Trezor in. and essentially you ROM dump it, right? So you take the, the, the whole memory of the main micro out. Uh, and then you can try to break that later, right? But you can take that data out. That is not true for cold card and, and ledger. Uh, the, we, we have very good defenses against that uh, because we're using secure elements. You could still try to ROM dump. I don't think it's fully possible on... Uh, yeah, anyways, nobody has provided a, a proof of concept on, on our uh, uh, open chip yet. Uh, it is a bit, it's similar family as the Trezor one, but it's not the same. Uh, we also have more uh, ECC de- defenses. Uh, but anyways, the, the thing is that the seed's still in a secure element. Uh, and, and you get a lot of those defenses uh, as part of the, the package, right? Um, it, I think, and another thing too is, you know, if you're crossing an airport, you know, you probably want your 25th word or, you know, not even take a hardware wallet with you and just take your seed or something. And, and then, you know, when you get to the other place, you you uh, uh, you reconstitute your seed in a, in a new wallet. But, uh, but, but those are considerations, right? You have to walk through all these case scenarios uh, where you you will have to surrender physical possession of the device, uh, either through absence, like the, the evil made attack, or, or you know, presence in, in a lawful situation uh, where you're not necessarily being beaten <laughs> for, for your pin. Yeah, that's a fair point. But this leads me to a discussion about an article which was published by Ledger a couple of weeks ago, and it was titled, Not All Chips Are Born Equal. And in that article, they distinguished between their security element chip, which is the ST33J2M0, and they say it's the true secure element. And what they define the cold card chip as is a memory chip. Yep. And that's fair. What's the difference? Is this like. So, you know, you can get into a semantic argument about what is the definition of a secure element or not. Um, so in, in their definition, the uh, a true secure element means that you're running all the code inside, right, of the secure element. Um, so the the 608 was, uh, was a, uh, our trick to get secure element security because the, the 608 has secure element security, right? So it has side channel attack defenses, it has uh, decapping defenses. It has a bunch of defenses, right? I mean, are they all perfect? Could somebody find a bug in them? Whatever. That's true, possible, but the same for their chip too. So it, it doesn't mean, if you have a secure element, it doesn't mean that you know you are infallible. It just means you have uh, audited defenses against many types of attacks that are normally uh, um, uh, physical in nature, right? So you have say, power differential analysis, right? So people don't 
don't uh, they, they can't do a side channel read of you calculating things inside these chips. That is true for the 608 that we use or for the ledger chip. Um, you have the anti-decap defense. It's the same for us and for them. You have uh, you have a tripping wires. You have you have a true random number generator, not just a random number generator. That means it's an audited random number generator, uh, and you use those to to do some of the the encryption and the, the and some of the uh, the communication between your secure element and other chips. So, um, you, you know, aside from the semantic uh, discussion, uh, you know, the six hundred eight that we use is is quite robust. It's a very good chip. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, so much that we went from the 508, which was the previous version, to this new version that has a few more features. And, uh, you know, we hope to use the, the newer version when it comes out uh, that might have other defenses. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, does it provide the security features? And, and, uh, and the manufacturer itself sells it as a, as a secure chip. So, uh, uh, you know. Uh, aside from this semantic discussion, I think uh, both of us uh, have different approaches, but uh, but the idea is it's still a secure uh, element chip. Yeah. Also, I think that cold card was, I don't want to say something mistaken, but I think you are the first hardware wallet manufacturer to release a Bitcoin only product. I know that in the first generation, you also supported Litecoin. But yeah. after this, you dropped it. And after you have promoted this Bitcoin-only approach, also Trezor have released their Bitcoin-only firmware for the Model T and for the other one. And I think, yeah, you have started this trend of having Bitcoin-only devices. And my two questions about this are, is this profitable? And does this really help with security by reducing the attack surface? Uh, it does. So, um, well, first, you know, maintaining a massive cold base just means you have to do more testing and more uh, and more bug fixing. So that means there's more room for attacks, right? That that's just the reality of software. More software you have, the more stuff you have to to uh, to test. Uh, so, you know, I think, again, it's a little bit of marketing on the other devices because they're still maintaining a massive cold base of shitcoin. Uh, the only difference is they're making releases that don't have the shitcoin. But it, that's still a substantial amount of resources put in those to re at least review and test those, right? Uh, so just taking that stuff out doesn't, doesn't really... You know, doesn't improve the security that much if you're still putting all those resources on it. Um, in terms of profitability, I mean, you know, we are a profitable player. Uh, we sell a lot of devices, uh, but we're never going to be able to sell as many as, uh, as say, you know, Ledger supporting all the shitcoins. Um, so it's an interesting sort of uh, play. I mean, but we're also not trying to be so. I guess consumer friendly in a way, even though it is easy to use. Um, we we are more we are focused on you know Bitcoin and actual sort of you know hard security with open source. Uh, I I think uh, I don't know where where Trezor is in that spectrum. Uh, so because you know they they do support all the shitcoins, they you know so they profit from that. Uh, but they also have to, to deal with all that stuff. Um, so it, it's not clear to me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, the reality is that Bitcoin is sort of king and, and that's where most of the, the hodling is. Uh, so that's what we're going to focus on. Yeah, also, I'm not sure if this question was part of the plan, but I have noticed that other shitcoiners, I mean altcoiners or whatever, call them what whatever you want, they don't care as much about security of their funds. No, they're because pretty... they're gonna dump it in a week, right? I mean, they they're holding on an exchange to to dump it. It's <laughs> you know, aside from some old altcoins, maybe that there are some larger holders and stuff. I, you know, reality is most of them are just gonna pump and dump on the exchanges. So I don't really see the true value in supporting them either. 
I mean, I know this is a Bitcoin-only podcast, but I see Ethereum people on Twitter, and none of them seem to be concerned about verifying the amounts that they're holding on their light wallets. I, I don't think node. Ethereum people are not interested in verifying anything. I mean, there is maybe, you know, a handful of archival nodes in their network, and they're all on Amazon. So, you know, I, I bet there is like one person left running all Ethereum archival nodes, and that's it. So, you know, it's a different mentality. Those guys are more interested in sort of like creating, you know, JavaScript apps. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm not going to get into Ethereum. It's pretty hopeless. Yeah, I don't want to get into it either. But it's just the general remark that Bitcoiners tend to be most paranoid yeah. about security and also invest in hardware wallets, steel plate storage methods and all sorts of creative wave, ways of storing your private keys, whereas on other coins, they just don't care. They might as well use a light wallet like Coinomi or something on their phone. The, the way I like to look at it is, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin is hard money, so Bitcoiners want hard security, right? The, the rest of the stuff is just noise, so they're going to just use, like, noisy solutions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we established that this is some sort of reaction episode to what others have said during the season. And in episode seven, Peter Todd told me that he doesn't use a hardware wallet, even though he has played with a few of them and he owns a cold card, he owns a treasure, but doesn't use them and has some kind of virtual machine set up where he uses an operating system called Cubes and he doesn't trust anyone else with providing any kind of devices. And I suppose that there are different types of Bitcoiners mm -hmm. who have different types of expectations and expertise in regards to security. And I guess when you first start out and want to get your Bitcoins out of Coinbase, you're going to have a different expectation from somebody who has who is basically a cypherpunk and can build stuff on his own. So what are what is the category to which cold card is trying to appeal? So we have a lot of security researchers that actually use cold card as their wallet or I mean, you know, we are the paranoid harder wallet, right? We, we like real security, cold and everything. Um, you, you know, there's always going to be extremely advanced uh, users like Todd who you know, they know exactly where to drill on the laptop and burn it after so that uh, nobody can retrieve their stuff after. Uh, but the, the reality is, you know, most people are not going to be able to have, don't have the right knowledge. And, and even for the people who have the right knowledge, they have other things to do in their life, uh, aside from attack Bitcoin, which is Peter Todd's full-time job, right? Um so I think I think it's uh, it's it's uh, it's unrealistic either in terms of knowledge or in terms of, of time uh, for all categories of users to to essentially not use a hardware wallet, right? I, I mean, I'm fairly knowledgeable. I could run my own sort of wallet on a laptop, and you know, I chose not to. Uh, I chose to to use to create cold card for that because you know. Uh, a computer is just too full of holes. Uh, and I don't think that that's changing anytime soon. Even using cubes, which is awesome, um, I think it's unrealistic. I remember this point from, and you're going to laugh when I mentioned the name, but I did the interview sometime in December. But Trace Mayer told me that he doesn't... Yeah, okay, laugh it up. <laughs> he told me that he doesn't trust any kind of hardware wallet manufacturer because they might keep databases of their customers and they can possibly associate the ser serial number with the amount of bitcoins that you're holding and possibly your identity so, so and, a few a few different things there let's let's just address them so uh, so one it's true that hardware manufacturers could keep track of uh, invoice versus device sent right we don't but you know, it's not impossible. Uh, now, what a lot of people do, especially large hodlers uh, that I know of, they will uh, either get a friend, a lawyer, 
uh, or anonymously order the hardware wallets from us, right, uh, sent to them. So essentially, even if we were nefarious, we can't keep track of that. Now, two, and the most important part here is uh, we don't know your key. So it's impossible for us to, to derive your public key to then know your UTXOs. It's literally impossible, right? Um, so, and on top of that, uh, we have this, this DICE feature so that you don't have to trust our, our, our seed generation. You can create your own seed with DICE. Uh, so again, makes it impossible for us to know your keys. Uh, so there is no way, even if we knew your serial number, which we don't, for us to figure out your Bitcoins. It's just not possible. Yeah, and this is not possible mostly because you don't have, you don't run servers to which users connect. You expect them to use Electrum or Wasabi or some other third party right. wallet, yeah. as opposed to Trezor, which has their own setup. And I'm... I'm not a fan of their approach to use a browser extension. I don't think that's it's really safe. Terrible security. And I think Ledger has a client that you install on your computer, but still you connect to their full node and their server and they know at all times how many Bitcoins you own and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, so, so this is, I, I see now your, uh, so th this is a massive issue, and, and that's the reason why essentially we would never make a, a wallet uh, that connects to our servers, right? Um, so in that case, yes, it is possible for Trezor and Ledger to, I'm not saying they do it, but it is possible for them to have a serial number attached to your invoice to then uh, identify the serial number through their, their system, uh, and and monitor those those wallets, right? Because they do have servers uh, talking to their wallets. Um, now, I believe uh, Ledger is uh, adding a full node to their Ledger application. Uh, I think that's a huge improvement, um, and I hope uh, Trezor does the same. Um, I, I think it, it's uh, one of the the biggest issues with Bitcoin is UTXO privacy. Uh, and if you get a hardware wallet and, and you go and you plug it into the computer and, and, and into this sort of server-based uh, wallets that are a little bit easier to use that, uh, that, that Trezor provides, you, you know, like you're doxing yourself. I mean, I don't believe they're nefarious or anything like that, but you don't know who's listening, right? So um, I, I think it's a terrible, terrible idea to dox your UTXOs to a service. Uh, especially one that has uh, your personal information. Yeah, and if you go with the Keep Key, which is owned by Shapeshift, they make you KYC nowadays. That's a different model. It's a different product, and I think that those are even free nowadays, right? So, I I don't think I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think uh, it's uh, I, I don't think they're even playing in the security space anymore. I think it's just. Uh, it's a whole different sort of, I like to see it as a different category. Uh, you're just sort of increasing your security exchange a little bit, but it's not really sort of playing to the actual security of your HODL uh, kind of hardware wallet anymore. Yeah, but I like to argue sometimes that you can buy that keep key for $20 or whatever they sell it these days and run it through Electrum and it's still kind of a treasure. Uh, no, because it's closed source. Um, and, uh, you know, it has all the security holes and, uh, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. It makes sense though, because it hasn't received all the updates that the Trezor has. Yeah. It's just, it's just too stale, uh, to, uh, to be safe to use. Yeah. And I know that, for example, I spoke with B BTC chip of, ledger and he i think he designed the original ledger and is responsible for the current designs too and he said that he appreciates cold card because they brought psbt to hardware wallets and yes. he thinks that the future models of the ledger are going to have psbt but on the other hand peter todd told me that he doesn't think that 
having the air gap with PSBT really makes much of a difference because you still connect the device to the computer with the SD card. So it's indirect, but it's still a connection there. Yeah. So so he's very wrong about this one. <laughs> um, so the USB stack is a massive clusterfuck. Okay. Like people who work with USB know this. It is just insanely big and messy, right? And it's only getting worse. Uh, when you look at USB-C, you just want to cry. Um, see, uh, and then, you know, you are susceptible, aside from the USB stack, you're also susceptible to USB cable attacks, like the iPhone stuff, or, you know what I mean? Like, you can have an nefarious cable there doing stuff. Um, so, and another, so I guess like a huge let me go back to microSDs first. So the, the microSD route, right, SneakerNet, uh, as it's sort of known uh, for, for many years, is uh, you, it, it's not perfect, but it's a very, very tiny code base. Um, and it's very limited read and write capabilities, and it's not executing anything, right? So, so it's a much, much, much smaller uh, attack surface. Uh, while the USB stuff is, is monumental. Now, another huge gain you get is uh, retrieval capability. So assume that all devices are hackable, right? Eventually, somehow. Now, if you are remote and the wallet is not connected to something, you cannot retrieve the information you managed to attack. See, with the micro the micro SD, you'd have to physically go there and attach it, but Say you found a flaw in a hardware wallet and somehow it can be exploited via the USB. You can remotely take that data out. That's not possible with the microSD. There is a reason why so many secure facilities and, and sort of important stuff is completely cold, like nuclear power plant. You know, just, just think about the, the extent that they had to go with Stuxnet to be able to get inside a power plant uh, a nuclear uh, enrichment plant uh, to, to do that attack. And, and even then, it was not for retrieval. They were just trying to mess with the plant. So uh, the increase in, in, uh, in attack complexity and retrieval is, is very, very big when something is not connected. Um, and then you also gain sort of like the, the, the UX of better hygiene. Right, better security hygiene. So you can have your cold card in a in a in a very secure location, and you go there, and you only plug to power. There's no laptops. There's no electronics with you. You, you know, you're not being sort of tracked or anything like that. Um, and uh, and then you do your transaction, and then you take the microSD out and go back to the location where you're going to broadcast it. Right. Um, that that whole UX security hygiene is a huge gain. Uh, as well, so I, I think uh, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's too simplistic to just think that uh, you know yeah microSDs can be attacked as well. Therefore, USB and microSD equal the same. It's not. Uh, there's a lot of parts to this. I guess that's fair, and I didn't know this about USD versus USB security. But it makes a lot of sense because there is so much happening with a USB device and there is only so much you can do with SD cards. Exactly. Um, you know, again, like very, very, like, especially when you're doing the micro SD card with embedded devices like a cold card, uh, it is very, very uh, uh, simplistic approach. So it's very few attack vectors there. Yeah, and let me address something that I did not like about the cold card, and I'm not sure if it can be fixed without a, a wallet of mm -hmm. its own. But you cannot check your balance to see how many Bitcoins you have directly from the device. You have <laughs> to connect to a third-party wallet like Electrum. Yeah, that's true and for any hardware wallet, right? Because you need UTXO information from the blockchain to give balance. So any hardware wallet that is not um, like online, right? Uh, 
it's not either a full node or an SPV client uh, cannot see balance. It, it's not that the hardware wallets don't want to show you balance. It's just that it's impossible um, w without connecting to something. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I didn't think about it in these terms, but I, I was thinking of watch only setups and stuff like that. Oh, you can do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you, you can do watch only with a cold card and uh, Samurai or with uh, Blue Wallet or Electrum or Core or really any wallet that supports watch only, you can export the XPUB and, and, and just watch it. Um, mind you that if you're using, if you're doing watch only, you are doxing your UTXOs to the node, right? If the node is yours, great. If the node is not yours, you're still doxing UTXOs. Yeah, and it's terrible for your privacy, which in itself is the preceding step for security. Yes. If people don't know how much you have, it's much harder to know if it's worth attacking you. Yeah. And I want to mention that we we spoke a little after I published that review in Bitcoin Magazine. And some of the remarks that I made, you disagreed with them. And I guess this is your chance to... <laughs> punch me back in the face for saying that the physical robustness of the cold card is not as good as the one on the ledger, <laughs> even though that was my perception when I was touching them. I didn't try to smash them. But also, before you answer this, I also want to mention that in terms of design and OPSEC, the cold card does look like a calculator until you take a closer look and you notice that the screen is too small mm -hmm. and it doesn't have any kind of plus minus multiply divide buttons for operations. Mm -hmm. So do you think you could disguise it to make it look more like a calculator? So I don't believe in security theater, right? Uh, reality is any advanced attacker or any attacker that's coming after your hardware wallet, uh, it doesn't matter what I make a cold card look like they will know it's a cold card, right? Because we're gonna have pictures of the product in a website. So you're not really gaining anything. Nobody is stupid enough to believe that that device is not your hardware wallet. So there is no, it's just not worth it, right? So might as well not try to, to pretend what it's not. Um, I guess in terms of robustability, so cold card is made of uh, PC, which is uh, polycarbonate. It's a fairly strong plastic. It's actually stronger than some of the, the vendors. Uh, but you know, these, these devices are not sort of considered rugged, right? So any of these devices will, will yield under a hammer. <laughs> yeah, if you try to smash them. Exactly. And that's a good thing because it's a great way of destroying them if you have to destroy that device uh, for, uh, again, security um, uh, uh, sanitation. So when I get on the CoinKite website and I order a cold card, are you going to store any data about me and the delivery address and stuff like that? So we don't have any link between uh, devices like the the, uh, the serial number of the bag or the device itself uh, and the invoice. They're just random in a pile and they get shipped out. Um, now, you know, due to, you know, tax law in Canada, we have to keep invoices for years. There's no choice on that. But uh, there is no requirement for you to put your real name on an invoice or send to your real house. So, you know, you can, everybody can be called Satoshi Nakamoto in our invoices and, you know, that's pretty fair. Um, so, uh, so essentially there's, there's really no link. We have to keep invoice information. That's true, I think, for probably most vendors of anything. Mm -hmm. I, I think the last reply that I got to this question was about Shopify, which is a third party shopping processor and Kobo said that they don't store the data themselves and it goes to Shopify, but I guess they still get invoice data just like you do. Yeah. So, so we've built our shopping cart system many, many years ago before Segwit, before everything. 
And uh, it, it was built with a lot of privacy in mind. Um, and, uh, and the information is sort of kept by us. There is no third party involved unless you pay your credit card. If you pay your credit card, then you're, you're essentially doxing yourself to Stripe. Um, but, uh, but there is no link between the, again, the serial number and the customer. Uh, but, you know, if you want to pay with, uh, with Bitcoin, you put Satoshi Nakamoto and you send to your PO box and none of our business, right? I mean, we can't really know who you are. There is no requirement for us to know who you are either. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first set up the cold card that I really liked that part where you can generate more randomness to your seed phrase by rolling a dice and inputting the result from one to six. And I think I rolled the dice like 100 days on that day just for fun to see if the device says this is enough, just move on with your life, do something. Yeah, yeah. Is there a recommended number of dice rolls or what do you recommend for security? So again, you know, into that sort of paranoid mode, uh, which is where I think everybody should be in regards to uh, their wealth and, uh, and and especially regarding cryptography. Um, y- you should, we, we don't trust the, the device itself, uh, never will, uh, for key generation, right? So you can you can let the cold card generate the your seed. Uh, you know, the code is open source, you can see, you know, technically it is sound, uh, but, you know, why, why trust it, right? So, so what we do is we offer you the option of throwing, you know, dice, six face dice uh, to add your own entropy. Um, you can do the full 256 bits of entropy with 99 rolls. Uh, or, you know, you can do 50 rows, you can do, you, you know, so that's like half, or you can do, uh, you, you can do just a few rows, uh, and, and add some entropy, um, for, uh, at least sort of like to, to, uh, to, uh, to trust minimize, uh, your seed generation. Uh, it really is to the level of your paranoia. <laughs> I was just scrolling your Twitter feed because I remember you posted about something very innovative for which Francis Puglia was also praised you, but I don't remember the name of it. So it's a CK Bunker. CK Bunker. And what what is that about and how is it related to the cold card? So, um, you know, I always wanted a row your own cosine service. Right, so essentially, like your own big go without doxing your coins to a cosine service. So, uh, so we essentially developed a open source uh, uh, little project that uh, that does that. Right, you can use a cold card as a hardware security module, cosigning transactions from either another cold card or from uh, other hardware wallets, anything that supports PSBT. Uh, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, and uh, and uh, yeah, so so uh, it's quite it's quite uh, it's like a, it's it's a bigger project, right? So it supports a lot of modes, and you can have different users, and it has a web UI, works over Tor, but essentially you you you, you put it running on a machine with a cold card on it, uh, and then you get uh, like a web service essentially over Tor. For you to do your cosigning, so you can tell it, you know, only cosign transactions of one Bitcoin per week, right? And that's all it's going to cosign. Uh, so, so now you can you can have a little bit more security with less, like with more parties involved, and that party is essentially you. So you're not losing privacy. Also, does the cold car have stuff like Shamir backup and stuff that? So Trezor uses yeah. So we have uh, we have since the the, the the launch a secure backup uh, method. So you can you can essentially um, encrypt your private key and uh, other settings of the cold card into a micro SD card, and then you get uh, twelve words to decrypt that micro SD card. Right, that's very nice 
uh, for you to migrate between your code card to another, or for you to just uh, create a, a safe backup that you can put somewhere else. Um, we don't have Shamir yet. Uh, we, we plan on, on, on uh, doing Shamir shares at some point uh, for backup as well. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, th there's a lot of other features that are more pressing that people want. Uh, we actually had a, a release today of another firmware uh, with more, more interesting features. Uh, so, so, you know, we're trying to sort of do the roadmap based on need as opposed to want. That's a fair approach. But what is next for the cold card? How do you envision like the next iteration of the wallet or some other firmware update that adds new cool stuff to the existing models? Right. Uh, well, so just today we launched a scramble uh, pin keypad so you can scramble it on the screen. Um, you can now show uh, QR code when it's over USB. Um, oh, this is a big one for me. Uh, you can, uh, you can when, you, when you create an Electrum or Bitcoin Core file from cold card, now you can choose account number, right? So you can choose different derivation paths, essentially. Uh, that's nice because if you're migrating from a Ledger or Trezor that had different accounts in their software, it's very easy now for you to import that seed and create uh, new Electrum files uh, with those different account numbers. Uh, just like just a click. Um, you know, there's bug fixes to do. Uh, there is a lot more multi-sig support. Um, there is more integrations with other uh, services and products. Um, we, you know, there's the, the Shamir stuff we want to do. Um, I mean, the, the list is long and, uh, and prosperous. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it just never ends. Right. Uh, I, you know, I hope to one day do, you know, lightning and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, some of the coin mixing right from the device. Um, we, uh, we want to see how people use the, the HSM bunker feature and, and improve there as well. Um, and, and then there is hardware itself, right? We, we're doing more experimenting with different secure elements. Uh, there is very interesting stuff that now uh, are not public yet, but coming out of different providers, different chip vendors that are sort of giving us to try. Uh, we want to improve the UX. Uh, on cold card, uh, definitely uh, like you know, look into different industrial designs for it. Uh, you know, this is this is what we want to do with our lives all day, right? So uh, it's sort of like a never-ending pursuit here. I agree, and for every new security feature, there are going to be many more, not necessarily bugs, but ways to exploit. Yep. So you have to fix all the time and keep up with the hackers, some of them ethical, some of them stealing your Bitcoins. But I wanted to ask you something. Let's say that I buy the cold card today and I hold on to it for like five years and maybe use it as a cold storage way. Mm -hmm. You think it's secure enough to not update the firmware and just leave it like that? It's impossible for me to know what the bugs or attacks will be right so it's it's not possible to give a future proof like sort of uh, answer to that um but you know if your physical storage is fairly safe and you are using a 25th word uh you know long term it's you know it's pretty reasonable uh it's likely more reasonable than a computer um is likely more reasonable than some of the the other vendors. You know, cold card Mark One, even though has some exploits, is still you know an order of or two of magnitude more secure than uh, than than a Trezor, right? So, uh, it's uh, we just never know what kind of attacks will come. So, and again, this is a very young industry. Right, we haven't had secure elements made for Bitcoin. We're still using generic stuff, so <clears throat> I guess it's uh, it's it's important to sort of like keep pushing until this industry as a whole matures a bit. Uh, maybe in twenty thirty years, uh, 
you know, you'll be more obvious and more stable, right? Like where do you, your, your footing in terms of, uh, in terms of security. Uh, but I don't think that that's necessarily uh, a choice or an option now. I think now the best thing to do is to keep on pushing and, and sort of don't expect uh, things to just remain uh, safe or stable forever. I think you gave us a very interesting hint there regarding secure elements specifically designed and dedicated for Bitcoin. I, I think it will eventually happen. Uh, there is there is some some conversations being had with like different vendors and but uh, but the scale is not there yet uh, for this kind of R&D. So, uh, you know, as Bitcoin scales, we have a lot more economies of scale and we can make more interesting things uh, that, that are only allowed at that scale. So my last question to you is, to which extent is owning and using a cold card comparable to having a dedicated general purpose computer um i, I mean it's uh, it's a whole different level uh, i mean you know unless you are a well even if you are a very 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 advanced uh user it's still in my opinion much safer to use a cold card than a computer i mean there, there's just no comparison there Okay, I think these are all of the questions that I had for you. Well, that you know, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, for the the opportunity to to talk about the stuff and sort of like clear out some of the some of the the the, the conversation around uh, hardware wallets, security, secure elements, and all that stuff. Yeah, and thank you for joining. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or promote regarding your work with Coldcard? No, I mean, uh, well, I guess just follow Cold Card Wallet on Twitter and join the Cold Card Telegram group uh, so you can stay up to date with the stuff. Um, you know, submit bugs if you find them. Uh, help us improve the documentation. Uh, you know, keep on buying the product. We keep on making it. It's as simple as that. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy Bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020. And for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage. And in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. And you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, 
Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at Femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. and You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution.